Well, good morning, everyone. Um, glad to have you here. Glad that we can be together and be in the Lord's presence and before His Word. Uh, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm a lead pastor here. We're glad you're here with us today. We pray God's blessing on you um, as we worship in His presence. We are in a series in the book of Genesis. We'll be going through chapters 1 through 22 uh, over the next number of months until the summertime. And so we are in chapter 1. We spent a good amount of time on chapter 1, verse 1 last week. But now we'll continue in the rest of chapter 1 into chapter 2. The, the chapter divisions in Scripture are, are not inspired uh, by God. They're helpful, but sometimes they're not exactly in line with what's going on. So, so we'll be reading into chapter 2, verse 3, because this captures the days of creation. Um, we are in this wonderful book learning about uh, God and about who we are and what this world that we're in means. And these verses that we'll be looking at are so important for establishing the, the foundation, really, of, of truth and of our life in the Lord. I'll tell you ahead of time what I would believe that this passage teaches us, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, got a good amount of material to cover today. We'll try to move relatively quickly, uh, but pausing as needed as well. But to tell you up front, uh, God's word here in these verses teaches us that God creates and orders all things for the enjoyment of his glory. God creates and orders all things for the enjoyment of his glory. That's the bottom line lesson, and there are lots of sub-lessons in this section of scripture. But let's pray. And then we'll read God's word and we'll dig into his, his wonderful, glorious word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life it gives us. We thank you for the truth that it grants us, that we might understand what is true, what is most important. We thank you for, most of all, what it reveals to us about you. And we need to see you in your goodness and glory. And Lord, we know when we do that, we're transformed. So we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, you, Holy Spirit, would come and empower the teaching, proclamation of your word, the hearing of your word, and that we would be transformed as we behold your glory. We thank you so much that you would love us so, and that you care about us right now, meeting together as a local church among your whole church. Lord, what, what a wonder. We're grateful. So bless this time and glorify your name, we pray. Amen. By the way, uh, we have journals. Uh, the book of Genesis is available to you. It's in the back. That's, this is yours to take and to write in. It's a journal. Uh, so we buy, whenever we do a series now, we buy these for you. So if you don't have one, uh, just go to the back and get one. Maybe one of the ushers could help if uh, anyone wants one. I encourage you to follow on and take notes. The idea here is to build a library of your sermon notes, hopefully helping you better understand and enjoy and apply God's word. So, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. 
And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested 
on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God's word from Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to dive into the details of this chapter, but there's some background that I need to cover. First, I think it's important, as you've been hearing this, you've probably been thinking about some of the controversy attached to this account in Scripture. It's been controversial for quite a long time. Uh, it wasn't just the 19th or 20th century, actually. The, the ideas behind the current controversy have been around for a long time. They come from the ideas that we would call modern cosmology and origins uh, that has to do with the view that, that, that we're here, basically we're material that evolved uh, through a number of natural processes to deliver us to where we are now. The, actually, the ancient Greek philosophers, the Epicureans, believed the same thing. That's not a new idea. And the Epicureans taught that, that basically uh, we're, we are comprised of atoms. They're the ones who come up, come, came up with the idea of atoms, these particles that they didn't quite understand, but these particles that somehow come together and lead to life. And, and really, there's no meaning in life beyond your existence. Humanity becomes the measure of all things. Um, and life is about finding somehow meaning in pleasure and avoiding pain. That's the Epicurean philosophy. Perhaps it sounds familiar. It would be really the, the same philosophy behind um, aspects of postmodernism and modern thought. But this whole, this perspective is really what's behind the controversy here. And, and this idea has, has become again popular in the, starting in the 19th century into the 20th. And the, the mainstream ideas um, would say that man is the measure of all things and also would would uh, come to understand the theories of Charles Darwin as dominant, to the point where it excludes any other idea that's out there. So that's, that's the background that we live in. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there isn't value in, in much of the modern understanding, the modern modernism as it's called. Um, but what I would submit to you is the problem with the modern mind and modernism is that Man is the measure of things, that man determines truth. Modernism uh, evolved out of the Enlightenment um, and had its heyday probably in the 19, just around World War II or so, 1950s. And it's very optimistic about what mankind can understand. The, the error in modernism is that we can know truth, therefore we can know all truth. Yes, we can know truth, but we can't know all truth. It's been the prevailing uh, mindset. It's very optimistic. So if you read textbooks from the 50s and 60s about, about these things and about science, you'll read it. It's very optimistic. We're going we're gonna to be able to do everything. We're going to fix everything through science. Now, um, I love science. Science has its place. I'm a, formerly a scientist before I was a pastor. So it has its place. But modernism is this idea that goes beyond that, that puts our confidence in our ability to discern truth. Well, you can figure out where that went. It didn't take too long in the failures of the 20th century for our culture to recognize there's a problem here. We're obviously not getting this right. And the idea came in that, you know, perhaps we can't know truth uh, like we thought we did. And then that the pendulum kind of swung the other way. Because we can't know truth really, absolutely, then we really can't know any truth. And that's postmodernism. 
The problem with both of them is it's looking to humanity to discern truth or not. And the Bible actually takes a very different view. The Bible is God's word, so God takes a very different view. Our understanding of truth, according to the Bible, comes from God himself, actually. We can know truth, indeed, not because we can figure it out, not because we have a rational mind, though we do, but because God reveals truth. The epistemology, the, the tr how we know truth from the Bible says we know truth because God reveals it. Indeed, he does reveal it through his creation. There's lots of things we can learn about truth and the truths of the principles that govern God's creation. We can discern them and we can utilize them to create things that for good. That's what science does at its best. But most importantly, truth is revealed by God's word. You can't know truth without God's revelation. He reveals it in his creation. He most profoundly and importantly reveals truth in his word. His word is true because it's his words. And so this text comes to us in light of that. We need to understand that this is true. What is said here is true. And it must stand over all other truths, even uh, apparent truths to us. We must submit to it because it is God's word and it is therefore most true. So as we look at Genesis 1, let us recognize that. That we don't know a whole lot. We don't understand things. Thank God for what we can discern, but it, it doesn't stand as absolute truth. God's word does. So we approach this passage humbly. And I think we need to be appropriately circumspect as we look at it. Because we are in a culture that has certain perspectives. And there's battles over Genesis 1, historic battles over it in our culture. And we need to be careful that we don't import our perspective from whatever side of the battle we are in into Genesis 1, but instead best understand what God is saying in his word and then submit to it. You perhaps have heard certain theories that are out there that try to uh, explain what Genesis 1 teaches in light of science. One of the biggest problems in, in science, and scientism I guess I, sh I should say, is that what, when we look at creation, when we look at the world, it looks like it's very old. And here we have an account that happens in days, six days. And so how do we handle that? And, and there have been different approaches taken to handle that. Uh, one of the theories is called the gap theory. Uh, it comes from Thomas Chalmers, a very godly man. And he says, well, there's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and in verse 2, the earth was, uh, was without form and void, and you can in interpret that as the earth became without form and void. And so the idea is there's a gap there. There's the original creation, and then something happens, and things are reformed by God. And so in that gap there, a lot happens, and, and all the, you have all the time in the world you need there. That's one theory. Second, there is the day-age theory that says the days are actually not just 24-hour days, actually. There are epochs. There are these long lengths of time, maybe even millions of years, millions and millions of years, depending on what theory you subscribe to. Another theory is, that it kind of goes with the previous one, the, liter the liter literary day theory, that this is actually poetic uh, literature uh, explaining an idea 
but not to be taken in any literal way. So the, the day here is symbolic. These three theories are all seeking to address the problem, the apparent conflict between science, modern science, and the Bible. And, and I would just submit to you, it's really not the Bible's concern. We'll get into that as we go through. God did not write this because he was thinking, I've got to have a better answer than modern science. The, the struggle of trying to reconcile modern science and the Bible is ours in our culture. So I would uh, submit that we need to approach it rather than trying to find a theory that makes these things reconcile, instead submitting to the word of God rightly understood. Now, there's lots of plausible explanations indeed for how we might reconcile science with Genesis 1. One of the things I think is important is to understand um, that God can do whatever he wants. He's God. And God doesn't need to confine himself to the laws of physics. There is a reasonable uh, amount of data to believe that the earth is old. I think we need to acknowledge that. That's important. It's reasonable to assume that the earth is very old and the universe is very old. I can give you a number of the reasons that, that, that are there. One is we are receiving light from stars that are billions of light years away. Therefore, the universe needs to be billions of years old because it takes that long for the light to get here. It's just observing the light and knowing what we do about the universe. That light that comes to us from distant planets, or stars, I should say, is old light. That's reasonable. We have minerals that are emitting radiation, or minerals and components, are emitting radiation at a rate consistent with a four billion year old Earth. Okay, that's happening. We have geological and natural processes that appear to have taken millions or even billions of years to occur when we observe things. They appear this way. And so you might be saying, well, where are you going to go with this? I think the key word is appear. You see, when we look at the data and then we conclude that it must be this way, we're missing an important point here. God doesn't have to follow our understanding of things. And when we extrapolate back in time, we're presuming quite a bit. If you had been around and you were uh, an organic chemist, in the days of Jesus, and you had sampled the wine at Cana, what would you have concluded? You would have looked at the wine, and you probably, if you had the equipment to do it, you would have probably said, well, this wine is obviously a good 10-year-old wine here. And maybe you could look at the mineral content and the organic content and even say, well, these grapes came from the local vineyards. Or maybe they could say they came from Italy somewhere. You could say a lot about the soils that they were in. You could say all that. It was all there in, in the data. And you could have told us the history of the wine. But what is the reality? What was the history of that wine? It wasn't wine. A moment before Jesus pronounced it as so. It was water. And he made it into wine like that. And so if we understand God as God and we have the miracles of Christ and most importantly the resurrection of Christ itself, someone has been raised from the dead is now eternally alive, 
Therefore, anything that that person wants could happen. Anything that the one who raised him from the dead wants to happen can happen. He's not constrained by laws of physics. And thus, we reconcile science and the Bible. The Bible is our ultimate truth. When it says this, we believe it. We take it as it is presented. We submit to it. And then we hold our data humbly. But we don't hold the data dishonestly. If we look at the science, as best we know, we can say it appears this. There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't draw conclusions that are contrary to Scripture in that place. We hold those things humbly. Humble epistemology, as we would want to call it. That says, I don't know how it's going to work out. I see this, and I know this. And to be content with that, I think, is wisdom. And it's important in that to let the Bible speak as it's intended to. So I want you to know that this passage wasn't written by Moses because he was concerned about 20th century battles over Darwinism. Moses didn't write it for that reason. His interests and God's interests through Moses were very different. He was interested in helping the people of God as they came out of Egypt understand who they are and how they got there. And so this is brought as a teaching in light of that. And of course, it's helpful for us too because we need to understand who we are and how we got here. But it's not just how we got here, but what is the goal? What is this about? And in even the, the very beginning here, in just the first chapter, God, at least implicitly, teaches us what it's all about. The concern was not 20th century Darwinism, neither was it young earth creationism as a body of, of trying to interpret these things in light of science. That wasn't the concern either. So you might have you know, hold certain aspects of those views, and I just ask you to, to, to lay them down at the feet of God and his word, and let his word speak as it's intended. My job and our job as pastors is to do just that, to try as best we can to remove our own uh, faulty or inadequate presuppositions and teach the word of God as intended by God so that we would understand it as intended, receive it, and benefit most from it. So with those caveats in mind, let's start to dig into the text and look at some of the truths here, the wonderful truths that are here. So we see in the beginning that the, uh, God creates the heavens and the earth. The earth is without form and void, it says in verse 2, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The earth exists, but at this point, there's no functional form. It, it's, it's chaotic. There's no meaningful order to the earth. Uh, there's darkness. It's without form. It's void. It's, it's empty. It's not accomplishing a purpose at this point. There, things are not ordered yet. Darkness was over the face of the deep, yet the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So, so the God himself, God the Spirit, is hovering over this chaotic, disordered form to do something. And what's going to happen in, in the following days is that he's going to bring form. He's going to bring order. He's going to bring function. And all that order and function is actually aimed at something here. And that's what we'll get at shortly. So what's going on here is, is God's creation and his ordering of things in relationship to God. That's the intent here. This, this passage isn't so much about the material origins of the universe, though it, it speaks to that tangentially, 
but it's really about the relational purpose of creation, what God is doing, what he's doing in relationship to him, how these things fit together, what the order and function of it all is. That's the intent here. And we often read into it our interest in in the, the material, physical origin of the universe. And there are things here that speak to it to a degree, but that's not the thrust here. The intent here is is what God was doing to bring order and purpose and to to fill out things for that purpose. That's what's happening in this text. And we see as we look through it again and again, we see, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Every day it says, and God said. It's interesting. Again, remember that this is written to the people of God as they came out of Egypt and and there were very different cosmogenies or cosmologies in Egyptian and Mesopotamian uh, religions. You don't have a supreme being saying. You have these gods working and wrestling together and making things and and there's there's tumult and they're wrestling sea creatures or wrestling each other or, or they're actually becoming the creation itself. Egyptian cosmogony, they they actually, the different gods become the sky, become the water. But that's not what's happening here. We have God saying. God speaks, and there is. This is a different God than the God that people would have known in, in Egypt. This is a God who speaks, and things happen. He commands, and creation happens. He's he's over all things. He's sovereign. He's mighty, and he speaks creation. He He speaks what is out of nothing. He says, and it happens. That's who he is. He's a God who can speak, and it happens. That's the authority, the supreme power and authority that, that the true God has. This is going to be true throughout the scriptures. This is who God is. There's nothing that can stop him from doing what he's determined to do. He speaks life to the dead, it says in Romans, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the God that Abraham believed in when God said, though he was, his body was as good as dead and his wife's as well, you will have an heir. And you will have heirs that are more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And Abraham believed that this is the real God who speaks and brings life to the dead and put his faith in him. David, when promised a son on the throne forever, believed in the thief on the cross. Though aware of his sin, and the brokenness of his life, when Jesus promised forgiveness, he believed this is the God who speaks, and there's forgiveness, and there's life. The same God who spoke over Christ, and Christ rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. This is who God is. He says, and it happens. He's worthy of all of our faith. He speaks over these things, then he names the things he makes. We see that throughout. In the beginning, he calls the light day, the darkness night. He names, the, names everything in this. And he's, he's expressing his creative lordship over things. He's the one who's made things. He's the one who's the lord of those things. He names them. It would be like if you had an old recipe from your grandmother that she invented, quadruple chocolate raspberry tort. Grandma's quadruple raspberry, chocolate raspberry tort, right? She named it, you named it, and it honors her when you say that. You don't say that tort. Let's have some of that tort again. No, let's have grandma's tort, that 
quadruple chocolate raspberry tort. And this, so that's the idea. God is naming it. He's the one who gets credit for it all. He's the originator, the creator of it all. And he says after he makes everything each day, what? It is good. It is good. This wasn't a half-baked, semi-evil creation. This was not a creation that was a struggle between the yin and the yang somehow. It's good. It is good. His creation is good, and it will accomplish its divine purpose. Again, remember, the, the, what's happening here is he's creating purpose in creation. So when he says it's good, he means this is, this is going to accomplish the purpose for which I made it. Creation is going to lead us to the place I intended to lead us to. It's good. And there's one part of creation he makes that is pronounced not just good, but very good. He makes mankind, male and female, and he says they are very good. Creation is made good and very good. There's no flaw in it. It is going to accomplish its purpose. Now we're going to get into chapter 3 later and realize something happens. There's a corruption that comes in, and it affects creation. It affects mankind. But it's really important for us to understand that creation, the physical and spiritual, are created good and very good. And so there's a value in who we are as those made in his image. That is very good. Yes, there's a corruption in body and soul that's there. But body and soul contain much good. And it's in its original form could be pronounced very good good. So we don't look at any human being, their body or soul, them as an entirety. Apart from that truth, we value people. We value the bodies that he's given. Our bodies are good. People are good as created by God. Yes, there's a corruption there. We'll get there. But all of creation is this way too. It's really important to understand this. There's a, there's a tendency, and there's so many things I could go off on. I'll do this briefly. There's a tendency in our culture to, to treat creation as somehow dirty. Creation is full of the goodness of God. It's appropriate for us to, to enjoy creation. Food is good. Sunny days are good. Oceans and beaches are good. Homes and lands and animals, trees and gardens, herbs, flowers, rainstorms, bodies, all good. There's no physical, spiritual duality, one being good, one being evil. As presented here, it is good, very good. Notice here, too, that we have the cycle of night and day. There was evening, there was morning, the second or whatever day. Each day is marked with evening and morning. This is how the Hebrews counted their days. And so what's going on with that? Is this all about, are we going to get into the 24-hour day versus an epoch? Is that what's happening here? Is that what you see in the text? Is, is there an argument about the, the, whether this was a literal 24-hour day or not happening here? Or is there something else going on? How many days does creation take? Six, right? And what's, after the six days, what day is it? Seventh day, right? And that is called the Sabbath. And who is this book written to, originally? The Jews coming out of Egypt, right? And they were in covenant under Moses, right? Through the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant. And what was the sign of their unique relationship with God? What was, the, what was the thing that marked them as those who were of the Lord? It was, it was circumcision, someone would say, but that was actually Abra the Abrahamic covenant. We'll get to that later. It was the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath marked them. Why would God do that? Is he just particular about days? He wants to, like, let's, I like the number seven. Let's do seven. What was the Sabbath about? Rest. And what do we mean by rest? Just taking a nap? No, right? Enjoying God. Worshiping God. Being with his beloved people. Resting in that sense that, that we get to know that there's one who's in charge of all things and is bigger than I am, that I can enjoy him and love him with his people. That's what rest is. That's what the seventh day is about. It's about Sabbath. It's about worship. And so what's going on with, with these days in the seventh day? What's the intent here as originally understood? They would have understood God is constructing a temple, a tabernacle. And these six days are six days of work to construct this temple, to lay out its form, and then to fill it so that the seventh day could be experienced, the, the enjoyment of the glory of God. That's what's going on here. That's what these days are about. That's the intent in Scripture. Now, in case you're worried, I think the most natural way to understand the day, though it is not the point of this passage, the most natural way to understand the day is in light of how the Hebrews used the day in the Old Testament. And for the most part, and this particular use, type of usage, it's always understood as a regular earthly day. Uh, one rotation of the earth, as we would say, 24 hours. So if you press me on it, I'll say, yes, I believe in a literal 24-hour creation day. But that's not what it's about. So it's like, I, that's not my fight. I'm not going to get into that because let me tell you what this is really about. This is about how God is creating all things for the enjoyment of his glory. That's what creation is about. That's why the usage of days is happening. That's why God chose to do it in six, what I think is literal days, to create it, to, to point to the fact that it's all to get to the Sabbath, to get to the point where we behold the glory of God and enjoy him and love him forever. So that in mind, let's do the third point and talk quickly about the days. It's always fascinating how fast that clock moves. <laughs> so the first day, he makes light. He makes light. Let there be light. Notice that there's no sun or moon here. God makes light. There's darkness, and he makes light. And this is not without purpose, because the Egyptians believed in the sun god Ra as the one. And what's happening here is God makes light and there's no sun. He's the one who's the source of light. He's the one who, who brings light to the darkness, creates a place to enjoy and know him and behold his glory. He is the light. And in Revelation 22, we learn that at the end there will be no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever, it says in Revelation 22. He will be our light. He's the source of light. He's the creator. It comes from him. He brings light and that light comes and he separates it from the darkness he creates day and night and the cycle, the six-day cycle that's going to follow. He's the one who brings the light. He's the one who brings the day. He brings all things. He's the creator of that. The second day is an expanse in the midst of the waters. God separates the heavens and the earth. That's what goes on on the second day. He's creating these forms. He's going to fill them later. But he separates these realms. There's the heavenly realm and there's the earthly realm. This is not just the physical heavens, as we know as the sky. I think I will look in Colossians chapter 1. It, it speaks of all the heavenly hosts as well. He's creating a realm for the spiritual realm, the heavens. 
and for the earthly realm. He's creating these realms on the second day. The third day, he separates the waters under the heavens. Uh, he's making dry land, and he's filling that with vegetation. So he's creating that realm of the earth. Now there's the earth, and he's filling it with life. The fourth day, he starts to fill these forms. Now in the heavens, there are lights to separate the day and the night, to be signs for seasons, for days, for years, to give light on the earth. It makes the sun and the moon to rule over the day and the night. It's really interesting to see how, how little press, really, the, the, the sun and the moon are not named here by, as the sun and the moon. Again, this is because in Egypt and other cosmologies, they believe that the sun and the moon were gods. And in this account, it's just it's something God makes. It's not even named. And so God's basically saying, no longer believe in Ra, believe in me, the one who makes these two lights, one for the daytime, one for the nighttime. The stars as well are put there in the sky. They are to give seasons to mark things. In, the, in that day, they would have understood each star to represent a, a lesser deity. And they would have subscribed to astrology. That's the origin of astrology, that the deities are in the stars, ruling over us, determining our destiny. But notice here, it's the other way around. The stars are not determining our destiny. They are our reference points for our time. And they're not deities, they're lights. They're here to serve us. We don't serve them. That's the difference here. And then, of course, these stars, uh, just to think about what we know in science now, that all these stars are actually about Earth. They're to mark the seasons for Earth and they're to give light to us. This account teaches us that the Earth is the spiritual center of the universe. That's what it teaches us. That's important, I think, to understand. And then to think about, that's pretty amazing. Because as we learn about the stars and how glorious they are and how far away they are and so forth, how many they are, uh, it's incredible. And it's, in some ways, really audacious for us to think that it's about us because we're just this tiny little planet uh, around a relatively small star surrounded by galaxies and galaxies and nebula and nebula all around us that are so much larger than us. But Genesis 1 teaches us that actually they're there for us mark our seasons, to light our day, to show the glory of God. The fifth day, God continues to fill the forms he's made. Uh, he says, let the waters swarm with, with living creatures, let birds fly above the earth. So the, he's created these realms, the waters, uh, the skies, and now he fills them with all sorts of animals and species. Do you know there are 230,000 species of sea creatures? 15,000 different fish species, 10,000 species of birds in the world, all these made after their kind in just glorious array. I wish I had time, I guess I will in the new creation, just to enjoy all this. I would love to have every sort of pet and animal, especially if I didn't have to take care of them, but every sort of pet and animal in my house. We had actually, at one point, we had mbunas. Mbunas are fish from Lake Malawi in Africa. And they were just amazing. We uh, had a 55-gallon tank we had for years when the kids were young. Uh, we, had, we raised these fish called Kenyans. And these fish were intelligent fish, actually. They had memories. They knew their owners. Uh, they were mouth breeders. So they would, lay their, they would uh, lay their eggs on a rock, and then the female would take the eggs in her mouth and hold them for three weeks uh, until they were little fish coming out of her mouth. 
and we got to watch all that and enjoy it. They were glorious, they're vibrant blue, bright gold, and, and just a little experience if, you're, if you want a fish tank, I recommend Mbunas because they're uh, easiest to take care of and they're beautiful. Anyhow, that's just one species among so many things, right? Just think about the glory of God's creation filling these realms. And, and by the way, it mentions the great sea creatures. That's noteworthy. Because the great sea creatures in the other cosmologies actually were predated even the deities. And the deities wrestled with these sea creatures and fought them. And, and that's part of the whole story that they would have believed. But here they're just another creature in the ocean that God makes. See what God's doing? How he's teaching his people who he is? That he's over all these things? Everything is made by him? Exists through him and is for him? Moving on, we get to the sixth day. And we'll take time next week to spend more on the sixth day and talk more about the creation of mankind because it's important. But he makes uh, animals on the earth, 50,000 varieties of the earth, all unique and glorious, filling the earth. And then he puts man in place, made in his image. That's so profound. We'll talk more about it next week. Made in his image. This isn't Pharaoh that's put in place. This is common Adam and Eve and all their descendants as those who are royal representatives of God himself in this temple to act as kings and priests in the worship and enjoyment of God. That's what creation is about. This is a temple that's been constructed and we've been put in as kingly, queenly priests to rule over it and subdue it to image God, to worship God, to enjoy God forever. That's what this passage is about. That's God's intent, his design. And of course, I can't finish without addressing the reality. As we look at all this, we, we, we have to think this is glorious and good, but there's a problem in creation. And if we're honest, the problem in creation is us, is me. Because I recognize all these glorious things I can see in creation. I can see what God's like, but I recognize in my own heart this desire not to worship God, not to trust him, not to obey him, not to love and follow him, but to do my own thing. We'll get it to it in chapter 3. The, the sad reality is mankind has fallen from the intended state and we're confused about why we exist and what we're supposed to be doing. We're lost in and of ourselves. And yet this passage is given to us in the context of the greater story of how God in his great glory and goodness pursues the lost and has come and be, become a man himself, a human himself, lived the righteous life that we were intended to live, satisfied the design of God to, the, to a perfect degree, and then offered that righteous life in our place to, to pay for our marring and rebellion, marring of creation, our rebellion against God. He bore our sins, paid their price in his death on the cross, bearing the holy justice of God, overcame sin and death, rose again victorious over sin and death, is now at the right hand of the Father, reigning, and he will return. And when he returns, he will finish and accomplish the purpose that we see in chapter 1. 
and for all those who run to him, recognizing their failure, recognizing how we have acted contrary to the design we see in chapter 1. There's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's redemption, and there's fulfillment of our ultimate purpose, to be kings and queens, priestly kings and queens, representing the glory of God, enjoying him, worshiping him forever. So let us once again return to that truth. Remember who our God is, what he's called us to through this text, what he's provided for us in Christ. He's created and ordered all things for the eternal enjoyment of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chapter and what it teaches us. We thank you for the wonder of creation, and we thank you for the, the greater wonder of redemption. Thank you that you didn't leave us in our brokenness, trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing, but you've come to rescue us. You've given us your word. You've given us the living word, Jesus, who died for us and rose again. And now in you, Jesus, we have new, remade purpose in life. Lead us in the life you've given us, we pray in Christ's name.